it, it, it does beg the question, what has gone wrong with young Hollywood? Honest to God, what is the problem? Hello and welcome to season four of Late Do You Remember This, where we look back on all the stories from Hollywood's best worst decade, the early 2000s, a time in history when America found out that with a trust fund, a sex tape, and a dream, you too could become a star. As always, I'm your host, Dara Lane. On the night of August 10th, 1969, four young criminals entered a Spanish-style home in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Though they all came from different walks of life, the group was comprised of unremarkable and damaged individuals who were in search of being a part of something bigger. Under the influence of Charles Manson, a failed musician who dreamed of stardom, they found their way into the lives of celebrities like the members of the Beach Boys, briefly witnessing the kind of glamour and privilege that some people in Hollywood got to experience every day. But ultimately, mediocre misfits such as them could never truly be a part of that in-crowd. People like them can only watch from afar as others live the life that they can only dream of. The life that people like Charles Manson believed that they deserved. So when fame didn't come knocking on his door, he and his cult followers walked through the door of that Spanish-style Los Feliz home and killed the LaBiancas, the older married couple who lived there. The day before, they murdered famous actress Sharon Tate and her three friends, one of them the heiress to the Folgers' coffee fortune. In orchestrating these shocking murders, Charles Manson stole the fame that he felt he was entitled to. It didn't happen the way he originally envisioned it would, but the important thing was that it happened at all. In May of 2009, Nick Prugo, Rachel Lee, and Diana Tamayo break into the house belonging to Rachel Bilson, the star of The O.C., the Spanish-style home sits at the other end of Los Feliz, only a mile away from where the Manson family killed the LaBiancas nearly 40 years earlier. But unlike their criminal predecessors, they chose to enter an empty home. They didn't want to make a big splash by writing helter-skelter on the walls with the blood of Summer Roberts. Instead, they simply scurry past the threshold of an unlocked door like little mice in Ugg boots and skim just a bit off the top, stealing a Marc Jacobs bag here, a Zach Posen dress there. She was so rich and she had so much that she would never notice. Most of the stuff still had the tags on it after all, and so much of this stuff was gifted to her for free because she was famous. Why couldn't they have a little taste of that life as well? But like a bump of coke or a single Pringle, just a little taste is never enough. Before you know it, you're inhaling a whole can of sour cream and onions, or hoovering up a baggie so big you could use it to powder a ski slope on a warm day in Big Bear. Nope. 
the group got greedy. And by the end of May, they had burgled Rachel's home a total of five times without her realizing. They stole clothes, bags, jewelry, underwear, makeup, size five shoes that didn't come close to fitting them, but they took anyway. This wasn't their first celebrity home shopping spree, and it wouldn't be their last. The summation of their victims being Paris Hilton, Audrina Patridge, Rachel, Orlando Bloom and his girlfriend Miranda Kerr, Brian Austin Green and his girlfriend Megan Fox, and finally, Lindsay Lohan. Later, Nick Prugo would explain that they chose their targets based on who they were fans of, whose clothes they liked. Rachel, Nick, Diana, and the other confirmed and suspected criminals involved, including, of course, Alexis Nyers and Tess Taylor, wanted to be in the homes of the celebs they emulated, to be in their orbits, to dress like they did. In October 2009, when they were all arrested, these celebrities now knew who they were. Their names were published right alongside each other in the tabloids, which introduced these unknowns to the rest of the country. First as the burglar bunch. When Tess picks up Alexis from the Van Nuys jail after being bailed out, TMZ cameras pursue them through the parking lot, the two beautiful young women hanging on to each other for support. Alexis makes a limp attempt at obscuring her face with a tiny scarf. Tess wears a pair of black Ray-Ban wayfarers. With the waistbands of their juicy track pants slung beneath their hip bones, they looked like any famous young woman of the early 2000s, leaving jail after their latest DUI arrest. Five months later, a Vanity Fair article by Nancy Jo Sales would come out, featuring glossy, posed photos of Alexis. Like the Pussy Posse in the 1990s, Nancy christens them with a new, more glamorous nickname that ends up sticking. The Bling Ring. Like the Manson family, this group of young, damaged, unremarkable people gained widespread attention for their illegal deeds. The only difference? 40 years later, it didn't seem to matter quite so much to people whether you were famous for something good or infamous for something bad. Also, the murder is probably an additional difference. The brutal stabbing of a pregnant woman feels a bit weightier than someone stealing Audrina's pair of custom jeans made to fit exactly her body. Listen, there's actually a lot of differences between the Manson family and the bling ring. Charles Manson wanted to be famous, that's for sure. But he also, you know, was trying to start a race war. Everybody involved was pretty upfront about that. His followers came for the LSD, but stayed for the race war. Didn't happen, thank God. But there was, to circle back, a, a ton of murder. Actually, you know what the main difference between the Manson family and the bling ring is? Charles Manson. If that tiny gutter troll was bouncing around a Calabasas food court in 2008, I have no doubt he would have found one of those little dummies at a Jamba Juice, seen an opportunity, and assumed the mantle of bling ring cult leader. And honestly, these kids seem susceptible to cult murder. I shudder to imagine what that alternative reality looks like. An iteration of Heart of Dixie starring Alexis Bledel? Luckily, Charles Manson was not the leader of the bling ring, so we don't have to continue to think about it. 
There was a lot of discussion and dispute over who the ringleader was, who was influencing the group, who could shoulder the most blame. Some people mistakenly point to Alexis Nyers because she became the de facto face of the bling ring through her prominence in the Vanity Fair article and her e-reality show Pretty Wild. But it can't be her, because the whole story really begins with Nick Prugo and Rachel Lee, who had come to be thought of as, respectively, the brains and the balls of the operation. Some thought it was Nick and others Rachel, but there was no clear consensus over who was the head bitch in charge of one of the most successful Hollywood crime rings in history. So successful that they probably never would have gotten caught if they all could have stayed off Facebook and kept their mouths shut. In the fall of 2006, when Nick, who was originally from Calabasas, moves back to the area after his family spent some time in Idaho, that's when he first meets Rachel. Nick is a freshman at Calabasas High, while Rachel is attending the alternative school on the same lot, Indian Hills. Nick felt uncomfortable at Calabasas High, where everyone seemed to drive BMWs. In the 10th grade, Nick transfers to Indian Hills. The following clip is from an Investigation Discovery tabloid episode about the bling ring from 2014. It's one of those tacky reenactment shows, and you'll hear the voice of its host, Jerry Springer, two women who are journalists, and the younger male is the voice of Nick himself. Nick doesn't play himself in the reenactments, but rest assured, the amateur actor who was cast and has no doubt already moved back to whatever Midwestern town he's originally from, turned a borderline homophobic performance fitting for the time period. It's December 2008, and Nick Prugo has just arrived for his first day at the Indian Hills School for Troubled Youth in Calabasas, California. Indian Hills is known for kids who are having troubles, difficulties that couldn't make it in the regular mainstream public school situation. And this was an opportunity for him to start over again. But Nick was really shy. He had severe anxiety. He was on medications. You know, I didn't really like school anyway, but I'm an anxious person, so that was, you know, of course, scary. When Nick arrived at Indian Hills, he didn't have friends. He was walking into a new environment, and I think that he was desperate to fit in at this new school. But Nick stood out because he was into fashion and into clothes and into girly things. Nick left looking through tabloids, looking at the hottest clothes, looking at the gossip blogs, and seeing what everyone was wearing all the time. I can appreciate clothes. I just like flipping through magazines and things. I mean, who doesn't like looking nice and kind of keeping up with the trends and stuff? I think he sort of aspired to look fashionable, but didn't have the money to afford that kind of thing. That combined with already his anxiety issues, he had it tough. At least it's Vogue. <laughs> After failing to make friends, things finally start to look up when Nick scores a ride home from one of the most popular girls in school. Hey, you need a ride? Rachel, though not Kardashian wealthy, still has a lot more money than Nick. Rachel's parents are divorced, and her mother, a North Korean immigrant, which, if true, is very impressive, owns two school tutoring franchises. Nick's mother runs a dog walking service, while his father was the senior VP of a film distribution company that was founded only in 2007. It would still be another two years before their huge hit, 
paranormal activity would hit theaters and go on to become the most profitable movie ever made. The film would premiere in September 2009, one week after Nick was arrested for the burglaries. Nick and Rachel quickly become best friends, both bonding over fashion, pop culture, and their various childhood traumas, which is, of course, groundbreaking territory for a teenage straight girl and her closeted male counterpart. In Nancy Jo Sale's full-length book that expands upon her Vanity Fair article, she talks to Nick who reiterates over and over how much he loves Rachel like a sister and would do anything for her. With Rachel, Nick felt like he finally belonged, and she also introduced him to two other gal pals who would become prominent members of the bling ring the previously mentioned Diana, and a rough-around-the-edges girl named Courtney Ames who went to Calabasas High. Tess Taylor was also a part of this group, but it's a little unclear as to how. According to Nancy's book and the ID tabloid show, Rachel introduced him to Tess, who went to another nearby high school. However, according to Alexis Nyers in an interview on comedian Heather McDonald's podcast, they met in some kind of rehab facility. And then Tess introduced me to Nick because I think they had been to rehab before when they were like preteens or who Tess? Tess and Nick. Oh, okay. Before, oh, because Tess had gone to rehab when she was living with you guys at thirteen. Not when she, no, she was a little bit older than that, and it was like a teen program. It wasn't like okay. a rehab. It was like wasn't like you spent the night. Or? And he, um, I see. I don't know because she okay. went back and forth between living at her dad's and with us. So, okay. um, she introduces me to Nick. It goes from rehab facility to more of a kid's diversion program that could be inpatient or outpatient. Who knows? Either way, through tests, Nick meets her best friend, Alexis, who she refers to as her sister. Rachel brought me out of my shell. It was nice being around pretty girls because, you know, you get, you get the attention. It was just good to feel accepted. He really just went into a whole social scene he'd never had before. While the days are filled with fashion and gossip, their nights are one big booze-soaked, drug-drenched party. Rachel was pretty wild. <laughs> There's coke everywhere. You know, it was just like stupid kid <laughs> You know, I'm not gonna lie, it was fun. Nick fell in love with these girls. In love with the clothes and the scene and the drugs, unfortunately. One night when they were out, Rachel sort of took Nick by surprise when she said, you know, let's go outside and check some cars. And she very nonchalantly started opening doors and seeing if people had money or wallets. It started with cars in our neighborhood. It was a real simple thing to do because all they had to do was go around and look for vehicles around lock. They'd open the doors, be able to find money, drugs, all kinds of things. I think leaving the keys in the ignition with your brand new Louis Vuitton purse, you know, in the front seat is kind of a little <laughs> dumb. I mean, it was a pleasant surprise. <laughs> I mean, at that age, we're like, why not? It's just easy, you know, a couple hundred bucks each car. We weren't really thinking about the consequences or the people we could be hurting or anything like that. Before long, Nick and Rachel are stealing from cars almost every night. It's a rush that they see as a free shopping spree. But soon they tire of this scheme, and Rachel suggests a way to up their game. 
Rachel asks Nick if he knows of anyone who won't be in their house that weekend, and Nick mentions an acquaintance that he met on MySpace had mentioned he'd be out of town for two weeks on a family vacation. As Nick puts it, before they knew it, they were in the car on the way to the teenager's house, one of their only non-famous victims. They knocked to see if anyone was home and then easily slipped through an unlocked door. As they rifled through drawers and closets, Rachel looked under the bed and discovered a box filled with $8,000 in cash. The next day, they returned to the home and with four grand each in their pockets, they took the family's infinity out for a spin to Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, where they treated themselves to a shopping spree after a job well done. Emboldened by their long string of petty thefts and a successful burglary, Rachel decides to up the ante. <laughs> with the teenage thieves on such a high, they come up with an outrageous idea. How about stealing from the stars they try so hard to emulate? Wait, I have an idea. What? Where does Paris Hilton live? Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Besides the fact that Rachel liked Paris's fashion sense, they settled on this celebutant as their first celebrity mark for a few reasons. For one, they figured that she had so much stuff that she wouldn't notice if anything was missing. They also considered, of all the celebrities in Hollywood, which one might be the most likely to be too dumb to lock up their house properly. Which at first, I thought, you know, that's not fair. Despite everything, Paris is a businesswoman, and that dumb blonde stuff is mostly an act. But then, well, you'll find out in a second. Finally, when they searched for her house online, they easily stumbled upon an aerial view of the property that showed a path leading to her house that seemed to be in a blind spot of her security system. They also see on social media that she was out of town, so there was nothing standing between them and a leisurely evening of B&E in Beverly Hills. Well, Paris didn't really live there. She lived in Sherman Oaks, which is behind Beverly Hills. But in 2007, when she bought the place, somehow the developer was able to get 90210 as her address's official zip code. Wow, it's beautiful. That night, the pilfering pals drive to Paris's sprawling mansion in the Hollywood Hills, and it's go time. When they arrived, they found a key right underneath Paris Hilton's mat. <laughs> Are you sure about this? Yeah. Don't be a The doors were already unlocked, so they didn't even need the key to get in. It was such an easy attack on the home. Once inside, the two ransacked Paris's huge walk-in closet a treasure trove of designer clothes, shoes, and jewelry. It's like, this is sick, I'm in Paris Hilton's house, and you know, this is her <laughs> This is her cash, and Rachel and I took a lot of clothing items, um, you know, booze, just things that are worth something. The high school heisters take just enough to enjoy, but not enough that they think Paris will notice. We weren't trying to be malicious, it was like free stuff. I mean, obviously it wasn't ours, but it was free stuff. Nobody's dead. The next week at school, Rachel's friend's jaws drop when she's strutting around in Paris Hilton's designer dress. Oh my god. Oh, la la. Rachel and I kind of wanted some sort of recognition, and we wanted people to kind of look at us and be like, oh wow, you look really good, and you know, that's cool. Is that a new acquisition, Rach? Uh, yeah, straight from Paris's rack. 
they were like from october to december of 2008 they robbed paris on four separate occasions they bring diana and courtney to go shopping raiding her closets stealing loose cash from inside her many handbags and they even steal topless photos of paris in her safe that's sitting there wide open Meanwhile, Courtney starts dating an older guy named Roy Lopez, who's a promoter at Ledoux. She tells him about what they're up to, and he offers to be their fence, someone who can discreetly sell the more expensive items for them so they don't get caught. Courtney and Roy plan the final heist of Paris's place for December, attempting to steal around $2 million worth of jewelry. In exchange for a cut of the profits, Nick agrees to draw them a map of the house and show them how to enter undetected. They ransack the place, taking most of her jewelry and other luxury items, and when Paris came home after the deed was done, she finally noticed she'd been burglarized and called the police. After word got out to the press that Paris had been robbed, Nick and Rachel laid low for a bit. It's not until Oscar night in February 2009 did they decide to break into Audrina Patridge's house. They had wrongfully assumed that she was at one of the many parties going on in the city that night. When they knocked on her door to make sure she wasn't home, nobody answered and they found a sliding door unlocked and let themselves in. Despite having an alarm system, Audrina hadn't said it when she left her home to visit her parents. She didn't think she had to because she'd only be gone for four days. At this point, Rachel and Nick hadn't gone too crazy in their previous burglaries. They weren't present for the huge final heist at Paris's place. They merely facilitated it. But at Audrina's, something in them snapped. They took a huge haul of stuff. In an interview with Nancy Joe. Audrina said they took jewelry, her passport, laptop, sunglasses, purses, quote, anything that was intimate and that was mine. Specific jeans made to fit my body only to my perfect shape. They took shoes, they took bags and bags of stuff, big duffel bags and bags from storage. As her outdoor security camera showed, they went back and forth out the side door filling up their car with stuff. And then... A little later that night, they decided they needed more and returned for another round. Audrina returned to her home around 2 a.m., 20 minutes after they left the second time. Realizing her house had been broken into, Audrina ran terrified from her home, got into the car, and called the police from a gas station. Audrina posted the surveillance footage from her home on her personal website, and on February 24, 2009, it was picked up by TMZ and then KTLA News. Nick told Nancy Joe that's where he first saw it, saying, quote, I was watching KTLA News, and I saw us on the news and I just broke down. When I saw the video of me and Rachel at Audrina's house, it really hit me for the first time. He was starting to realize that what they were doing had big, real-life consequences. He called up Rachel and started freaking out. As they talked it through, she remained calm and measured, not because she was cool under pressure, but because she didn't see it as that big of a deal. And that was her attitude so far throughout all the burglaries. According to Nick, he was the nervous and hesitant one from the beginning, wanting to leave Paris's house as soon as they stepped through the door. 
Rachel never seemed fazed by the danger of what they were doing and would apparently reassure Nick that he was being paranoid and there was nothing to worry about. Now, there really seemed to be something to worry about. And still, her pulse was at baseline. In the month that followed, Nick said he was losing sleep waiting for someone to realize that they were the people in the video. But nobody did. Nick asserts that after the close call, he wanted to stop, but Rachel insisted they keep going. Nick loved her and didn't want to let his friend down. In Nancy Joe's book, she has far and away the most access to Nick, so his side of the story is the most prominently represented. He paints a very sympathetic and believable picture of himself compared to Rachel, and their relationship reminded me of another duo. In an example of how teenagers these days seem fine with being infamous if they can't be famous, Nancy Joe brought up Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the Columbine school shooters, which was interesting because before I got to that part, I had been thinking about how the relationship between Rachel and Nick reminded me of what I heard about Eric and Dylan. Columbine experts now unanimously agree that being bullied had nothing to do with their actions. In fact, they weren't particularly made fun of, and they had a normal amount of friends outside their relationship. What really went on was Eric was a true blue psychopath who wanted fame by any means necessary. And Dylan was a profoundly anxious, depressive person who was easily manipulated. When many people think of a psychopath, they might imagine a wild, raving lunatic who can't control themselves. But they aren't psychotic. They're rational and aware of everything they do. Psychopaths can commit immoral or illegal deeds calmly and easily, not because they don't realize what they're doing is wrong, but because they don't have a conscience, so they simply don't care. Psychopaths are charming and manipulative, partially because, without a conscience, there's nothing stopping them from saying or doing anything they have to, just to get their mark to do what they want. Now, am I saying that Rachel was a psychopath who preyed on Nick's devotion to get him to help her rob her favorite celebrities? Not definitively, but psychopaths are a little more common than one might think, most being nonviolent and functioning, which is one thing to keep in mind before you discount the idea altogether. However, in the book and in interviews during the trial, Nick seems like a sympathetic person, plagued with guilt over his actions. But after seeing some interviews with him once the coast is clear and the time was served, he seemed like a little dickhead. Rachel didn't speak to Nancy at all and avoided any interviews, which is a decidedly non-narcissistic, non-psychopathic thing to do. But other accounts besides Nick's mention anecdotes where she does seem detached and to be lacking any remorse. And there's one thing she does during the next burglary at Rachel Bilson's house that is hella psychopathic. But we'll discuss that in part two next week. Okay, fine, I'll tell you now. In between stealing her jewelry and her makeup and her underwear, this girl goes into that poor woman's bathroom and takes a poo-poo. 
Listen, I wanted to use a term more visceral for storytelling and humor's sake, but I simply don't have it in me to punctuate thoughts with scary toilet words. But either way, she apparently did it, and that is a scathing indictment of her moral compass or lack thereof. Now, you probably noticed that we didn't get too far into the Tess and Alexis of it all. We only got a little bit Alexis. But it's not until the Rachel and Orlando Bloom burglaries that they really become a big factor of the story. And I can promise, next week, what we lacked in Nyers, we will more than make up for. Honestly, I've gone down a rabbit hole of investigation, and I arguably know too much. You're going to have to indulge me as I beautiful mind this shit for what could be many hours. So... Assuming I remember to eat and sleep between taking in additional content and don't end up admitted to Cedars for exhaustion and dehydration, I'll see you next Wednesday. Oh, and go on my Instagram bio and submit your email through the coloring book link. I'll be sending out a show newsletter where you can find all the content I mention in full, and who knows, maybe my 300-page Pretty Wild manifesto. Well, back to work. Lay Do You Remember This is researched, written, narrated, and edited by me, Dara Lane. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave a rating and review. You can follow updates on the pod on Instagram and Facebook. We also have a private Facebook group you can join and some early 2000s Spotify playlists I put together. You can find those links on the show's Instagram. And please, if you like the podcast, share it. Tell your friends. It's true what they say. It takes a village to make me famous. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please email laydoyouremembersthis at gmail.com. So, you're invited to come by next week. We've got a table, and I've put you on the list for Lay Do You Remember This. Set, 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 set